Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you don't leave us. We are so frail. Thank you that you don't leave us in our frailty and in our sin and in our hearts that want to continue to run and run and run after any, anything other than you. Uh, we have this, this thing in us, our flesh, that just wants to find life apart from you. And you are so kind. You are so gentle. You are so merciful. You are so full of grace, so full of love. You are so patient that you not only put up with us, but you love us and you continue to move toward us. You continue to move in us because you have joined yourself to us forever. So thank you, Lord, for, for all of that. Thank you that you use uh, people like me. Thank you that you use people who are continually fooled into and enjoy being fooled into chasing and worshiping idols. Thank you that you, you call us back and you don't need uh, people who are too smart and too holy to uh, ever be fooled by that to do your good work. Father, I pray that you would keep your promises to us, that you, your word goes forth, it is preached, it accomplishes the purposes for which you send it. We will not remain unchanged. We will, we will all be transformed according to your goodwill for our lives today, whether we feel it or not, Lord. I pray uh, also for that. I pray that you would... Uh, not, not let, leave us in this place of ignorance where we believe that uh, anything that we can't feel must not be true and anything that we do feel is true. Lord, that's such a, a lie. Please free us from that. Lord, uh, we love you. We long to love you more. Use your word now to do your good work as you're here with us, working, living, active, moving, breathing, loving, caring, transforming. And pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Uh, question who who knows uh what the um powerball jackpot is now so what is it 1.9 billion dollars okay who plays powerball okay so we have three people that play in in 150 liars great okay playing powerball is stupid okay <laughs> Scott, <laughs> I'm glad most of you kept your hands down. You can avoid this shaming. Uh, it is, it's ridiculous. It is, it is absolutely ridiculous. Scott, um, I'm sorry. But, but, I mean, we know that, right? We know that. On some level, we know that playing Powerball is ridiculous. We know that the odds of winning are so astronomical that I probably would start a colony on Mars before I would win the Powerball. Um, so here's the question. Why do we keep playing religiously? Why do we keep playing Powerball religiously? I came across this article this week, very interesting to me. This woman who is like the godmother of state lotteries, she's been hired by multiple states to either create or improve their state lottery systems, and she is just the rainmaker. She's making it happen. So they interview this woman, and they ask her, you know, what are, what's your... What are your tricks? And here's some things that I thought were interesting from the article. Said it's a game where reason and logic are rendered obsolete and hopes and dreams are on sale. She learned to make the lottery fantasy tangible by making sure that winning on a much smaller scale is something that people experience. And she says, if you play a lot and you play for three years and you never win, then you're not going to keep playing. 
To prevent player burnout, she pioneered games with different prices, designs, and themes just to keep it new, to keep it interesting, but it's really just the same thing over and over again. And she uses, they use this thing called, this phenomenon called framing. And uh, this Princeton economist said, most people frame the lottery as, wow, I could win $100 million rather than considering what they might lose because when they pay a dollar every time, that seems inconsequential. But obviously those dollars stack up and you never win and you end up just pouring out money to this thing that you never win. Uh, and then of course, what we know uh, is that even when you win, if you're one of the lucky few who wins, it doesn't bring eternal happiness. Uh, based on the documentary that they've put out, it actually brings misery to most people who win. So uh, I, this, this really struck me as I was getting ready to preach this passage because I, it, it really uh, dovetails with what's going on here. So if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Acts. We're looking at what, what it is to be the church, the people of God on mission with God. And, and we all come in with all sorts of baggage on, on what our understanding is of to be the church and what it is to follow God and what we're all about. And so we've been looking this semester at, let's go right back to the source. Let's go back to the, the birth of the church of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church in the world and just see what he has to say about it for himself. And so here, what's, what's being exposed in, uh, in this passage of scripture is that there is a spiritual war that has been and is being and will be waged throughout human history for the souls of men and women that God has an enemy named Satan and Satan has his forces of demons and they are at work in the world, working to keep separate and separate and destroy man from God, that that, that intimate personal union would, would not get created or if it's created, it would get disrupted. And so you, you sort of have this um, demonic lottery system, so to speak, that has been developed called the world and the way that the world works and promising things, over-promising, under-delivering, but um, come and put your hope in anything other than Jesus. Come, come in and find all these little ways to be your own God rather than to go to the God who created you, who sustains you, who is himself life. And so as we're following Jesus on this mission, he is continually enabling us, and it is absolutely necessary for him to do this, to see behind the curtain like Paul does in this passage. To see behind the curtain and to see what's really going on, the spiritual realities underneath our day-to-day -day interactions, so that we can fight alongside Jesus for our hearts, for each other's hearts, and for the hearts of men and women who, who don't know him yet, but we pray will. And so here in this passage, uh, Paul finds himself in Athens, waiting on Silas and Timothy. Athens is uh, the cultural epicenter of the Greek world at that time, named for Athena, the goddess of wisdom. So you think about cultural epicenters of today, Silicon Valley, uh, New York City, maybe even Nashville. And we call ourselves the Athens of the South, little trivia factoid. And we call ourselves that because we're special. <laughs> so... Um, Paul's spirit, as he is moving around this city, is provoked, it says. His spirit is provoked within him because he sees that the city is full of idols. That word provoked means deeply angered. His spirit is deeply angered. But here's the thing. He's not angry at. He's not angry at these people who are worshiping idols. He's angry for these people who are worshiping idols because... Anger, when it is righteous, is a, is a fruit of love. Anger is 
I see someone or something I love being attacked and I want to fight to protect it or fight to protect them. And Paul loves Jesus and Jesus loves people and Paul loves people because Jesus loves people. And so he is angry for these people who are, who are caught in this uh, whirlwind of, of idolatry in this city. And so uh, what Paul sees is the Acropolis, if you're familiar with ancient Greece, uh, it's basically a shopping mall of temples to gods and goddesses. And you honor these gods with sacrifices, gifts, and rituals to keep bad things away from your life and to bring good things to your life. And if that wasn't your flavor, if you were a little too, uh, too mature for that, then you had all these schools of philosophy. And, and basically all these schools of philosophy, they mentioned two here, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're more alike than they are different. And essentially these schools of philosophy are for, they really appeal to the intellectual elites who think, you know, I'm kind of above this whole thing about worshiping these little gods to all these different things. Um, and then the reality that they, they believe is self-actualization apart from gods, is that either gods don't exist or they do exist, but why would they be concerned about your little minuscule life? They're not gonna come to help you. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna provide a set of principles to live by, to live wisely and to live good and to better yourself apart from gods so that you can maximize, you can change what you can, you can maximize yourself, uh, and fate is coming for you, you're gonna die one day, and you can't do anything about that, so we're gonna help you accept with dignity the things that you can't change. And they're not gonna make a Pixar movie about that. Um, that was funny, guys, That's, you should laugh at it. But no, seriously, it's this, dead, it's this soul deadening, it's like, it's this cynicism, this like, all these, these desires in my heart are just being shut down. And I'm pretending like I don't have those desires. I'm pretending like I don't have those fears, that I'm not afraid to die, that I don't want something more than just this life and eking out an existence for a few years. And so, so we have to ask this question. I mean, that's, a, that's its own different flavor of idolatry. So with all this idolatry, why is Paul so angry on behalf of these people? Okay, so what is idolatry? Idolatry... Um, idols are false gods. They're illusions crafted by men and empowered by demons to keep men from the one true God. They offer life, they bring death, they keep us separated from God. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is where, where I get this. It says, God's people stirred him to jealousy by worshiping strange gods, making sacrifices to demons who really were not gods at all. So it's this demonic activity behind the, all of these different idols, all these different flavors is like, hey, 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 come over here. Don't, don't go to God. You can't trust him. He doesn't love you. That's not where the good life is. Come over here uh, and worship at the feet of this, this idol. You, you always though, you, with idolatry, you pay in more than you get out, always. You'll never beat the house. When you're lucky enough to, to be one of the few who wins big, you still lose. Psalm 16.4 says, the sorrows of all who run after another God will multiply. Psalm 115 says, those who make dead idols and those who trust in dead idols will become like them, dead, dead in your soul, dead in your heart. We sacrifice our hearts, our families, our souls, our humanity at the feet of these idols. And even when we win, we lose. And eventually maybe we get tired of losing 
and we join the schools of philosophies with the intellectual elites. We say we're above that now. Deconstruction is a form of that. And we shut down our hearts. We better ourselves where we can, and we don't hope too much. But here's the thing. We can't not hope because we were made to hope. So what ends up happening is it's like we're, we're in these cynical schools of philosophy while we're worshiping idols. It's like having a cig while wearing the patch. It's like we're just this weird combination of doing both, and, and they're not working. But we're pretending like everything's great, but life's not working. So why do we keep playing the lottery? Why, why do I keep running after idols? Because like the lottery, it's a game where reason and logic are rendered obsolete and hopes and dreams are on sale. The enemy has learned how to make the lottery fantasy tangible by making sure that winning on a small scale is something that we experience. And the games keep coming in different colors and shapes and sizes and flavors. I mean, I just look, I reflect on my life and, and what I see in my life and in the world. And, you know, we'll start small, maybe. Maybe it's bigger than I like to admit, but college football. I'm a Tennessee football fan. I giggle. Um, <laughs> but you think about being a fan of any sports team uh, in, in an idolatrous way is, you know, if, if I'm looking for something more than uh, a group of college kids can deliver on a football field, um, there's, no, there's no way to win. I mean, take Alabama, for instance. Even when you win, yeah, take Alabama, Emily. Take him. Take him. Even when you win, listen to this part. This is good. <laughs> Even when you win, everything. Now, it doesn't satisfy, and the only place to go is down. When they step on the football field, there is no up. It's either neutral, maintaining, or it is getting worse. Because we're already at the top. And when we're at the top, I'm not even enjoying the top because I'm always looking at the next thing because it's about to be taken away. Like it was last night. Sorry, Emily. Um, <laughs> but I mean, seriously, think about that. Like, I, you know, that is an idol. I'm looking for hope and life and something ridiculous. Um, think about the way we think about fitness and beauty. Like if I could just get these things. Well, guess what? Even if you're one of the special chosen few who are very fit and very beautiful, if you're a professional athlete or you're just so fit that everybody wants to be you and be like you, or you're so beautiful that you're so desirable, that is all going away. And the, the terrible thing about that is when you win, oh, you lose. You lose so painfully. Because when you have been told by everyone that that is your identity and then it's gone, it is hard, it is painful. You do not win, you do not beat the house, you always lose, you always, always, always lose. Think about work. Man, if I can just get to the next thing, if I can just build this next company, if I can just make this amount of money, if I can just, 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 the finish line keeps moving. And even if I'm one of the lucky few who wins, and I've had conversations with more than one of you in this room that even when we win, it doesn't deliver and the finish line keeps moving and it's disorienting because that is not where life is. Think about family and kids. If I'll just go and make these little sacrifices to the idol of happy family and kids, happy and healthy kids, 
If I just do this every day, if I go through all the steps, if I read all the parenting books, if I make all these little sacrifices, then they're going to turn around and bless me and give me what I want. They're going to give me no problems, and they're going to be happy and successful and wonderful, and they're not going to experience any pain, so I'm not going to experience any pain. (laughs) And you know what? We do that with our own bastardized form of Christianity. Okay, I'm not going to worship other gods. I'm going to worship this God, but I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to be such a good boy. I'm going to go to worship every Sunday. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to be involved in church activities. I'm not going to sin in really extreme ways, just in little ways that are still fun, but not as bad. And when I do all those things, I'm obligating God. He has to keep up his end of the bargain, and he has to bring me a spouse, or he has to bring me a career that I really love, or he has to bring me whatever it is. He has to keep all the people I love from dying ever, whatever it is. And then when he doesn't, that's when I move to the schools of philosophy because I'm so disoriented, I'm so upset, I'm so offended. This is all garbage, I'm out. We pay our dollar a day to buy our tickets, believing that we can be the chosen one, and we just bleed out all day, every day. So what does Jesus through Paul do here? He engages. He goes into where these people are having these conversations and he engages with them because he loves them too much to just leave them in this place. So it's like, I mean, Paul goes to these places that today, I guess, are equivalents. I'm trying to think of what that would be like. It'd be like maybe our gyms, our bars, our coffee shops, our book clubs, the places where people have conversations sort of beyond the surface level. But he goes to those places where he knows people might be willing to have these conversations and he starts introducing them to this Jesus. And how do they respond? They respond the same way that I respond when people are messing with my idols. Some people call him a babbler. That's, that word means seed picker. And it's this idea of a bird just going around picking up random seeds. And what it means is he's a charlatan. It means that he is somebody that gathers bits and pieces of philosophies and information and tries to cobble them together to make the illusion that he's somebody really brilliant. And the way these people, the reason these people accuse him of being this is that's what they are. It says that all these people, all they did was nothing except telling and listening to something new all the time. And so they're jealous of Paul. (laughs) They're like, what is this guy? Who do you think you are coming into my life and telling me this? You're just like me. You're just doing what I'm doing. You're just trying to get ahead. You're just trying to be above everybody else. Don't come into my life with this. And then some people call him a preacher of foreign divinities. They're threatened. They're scared because (laughs) this little small sad life that they've built under the illusion of idol worship, which is really self-worship, is being threatened by this new information that Paul is bringing. And it's so threatening that Paul gets taken by them by force to the Areopagus, which is the city council of Athens. So this cultural epicenter, this, the Areopagus, is this city council that is charged with maintaining the health of the civic life when it comes to religion and philosophy and education. So Paul is dragged before this council, which I think is hilarious. It's like bringing Luke to the weak point in the Death Star to blow it up. It's like they're taking him to the epicenter where all of the, thank you, the one Star Wars fan who says something, um, and he's about to blow the whole thing up. So he's taken to this place, and they say, you are bringing some strange things to our ears. And that word strange is this beautiful word that is a combination of fear and wonder. 
You are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. These people were trapped in this illusion of intellectual elitism, hearing and telling something new all the time. And guess what? Everything they were hearing and telling was the same thing, just repackaged a million different times. Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So when Paul comes with this message, that's why this message is threatening. That's why, I mean, they've heard a million new teachers with new teachings, but this one is strange to them. It has power. It has weight. It's different. It's threatening. It's scary. It brings, it actually starts to wake my heart up a little bit to hope again. What is happening? This is the only thing that's not new under the sun. This is the only teaching that these people could hear that would shake them awake from this rut that they've been stuck in their whole lives. So Paul says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. No matter how proud you are, no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how accomplished you are, men and women of Nashville, I can see that you are religious in every way. You have an altar even to the unknown God. You know what that says? That says you have this pantheon of gods that you worship. We couldn't even come up with another one because you've already hit them all. The God of fertility, the God of war, the God of wisdom, on and on and on. Anything that we think might be good to have, we have a God to that thing. And you still have an altar to the unknown God. Why? Because all you're paying in sacrifices, all you're paying in of worship, all you're paying in of your dues the way you're supposed to is not bringing the blessing that they promised to bring. It still feels empty. My life is still empty. There is something that's missing. I can sense in my spirit, no matter who I am or how far down this path that I've gone, that there is something else out there that is beyond all of this that I know. It's something that I don't know, but I do know that it's there because I am hungry for it. I am starving for it. I am desperate for it. I know, even when I pretend that I've killed all the hope and dreams in my heart, I know that I was made for intimate relationship with something, someone beyond this world. I know that I was made to live forever and I cannot shut that up. It will always resurface. And he says, this unknown God will not remain unknown because he has sent me. He is here standing before you through me to tell you who he is. And it is Jesus. It is the one true living God. And essentially, we're not going to go through line by line what Paul teaches them. But here's what he says. Here is this truly new teaching. One, you are not God. All of this system of idol worship, all of these vain philosophies, it is all just a thin veneer for you to be your own God and not need God. And to think that you are so special and so awakened to the realities of the world and so elite and so wonderful. And guess what? You are desperate for God. He, you cannot put him in your debt in any way because he needs nothing from you. You need him every second of every day because if he doesn't supply the breath in your lungs, you just fall over and die. You need him all the time. And here's the good news. 
you can know this God. He is not like these false gods that are this mysterious like fog of spirituality, like there's this spiritual force in the universe, but it's so vague. And I kind of love that it's vague because it doesn't talk to me and tell me things I can and can't do. And so I just kind of live however I want and say that I'm spiritual. No, no, you can know this God. You have been made in his image. He has put something in every single one of us that says, I am made for a deep, intimate relationship with God of the universe. I'm made for intimacy. I'm made for love. I'm made for community. And if there's a God who makes people like that, then you can believe that that God is like that himself. And not only is he like that for himself, he has made us for himself in those ways. We are made to have that kind of relationship with him. So we can know God and he is worth knowing. This God is worth knowing because as it says in John 1, Jesus has made this invisible God known. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is God who has come down like Paul who came to Athens and was disturbed deeply in his spirit. God has come to us to this place that is riddled with idolatry because he loves us because he is deeply angered in his spirit for us because we are his treasure. And he has come into this place where we would rather be anywhere but with him to lay himself down and to lead us to life in him, the only place where it can be found. This Jesus is so beautiful, so full of grace, so full of mercy, so full of truth, so full of beauty, so full of uh, patience and kindness and love. You can know this God and he is worth knowing. And he is returning. This God who is worth knowing, who is bled out on the cross so that you can have life in him, who has taken all the depths of wickedness and darkness of sin into his very being so that it can be dealt with and you and I can be free of it forever. He is returning and he is commanding commanding that you repent, which just means that you turn away from life apart from him and return to God. And he's commanding that for your good because he is coming back to judge every man and woman who has ever lived. And we will either be judged, all of us, in him, we will be hidden in his righteousness, hidden from God's wrath because his, his blood has already been spilled on our behalf, and we will have life with him forever or we will be judged apart from him, standing on our own. And we will, we will experience death apart from him forever. So Paul is saying, wake up. <laughs> Jesus is saying through Paul, wake up. Like I am here because I love you. I am here because all of this is an illusion. I'm here because you are being duped. You think life is found anywhere other than God. And that is the only place it's found. You can't go find it and win it and earn it for yourself. He has to give it to you. And he is giving it to you. He has given it to you. And he's just asking you to believe so that you can experience the very thing that you were made for. And as Bono says in, in one of u two songs, to stop chasing every breaking wave, thinking that it's going to be different, thinking that it's going to last Don't do what these idols are pushing us into doing. Don't do what these schools of philosophy are pushing us into doing, which is to deaden your heart. It's to anesthetize and to numb your heart so that you don't think about and you don't feel these ultimate things. Don't 
don't think about dying, it's too scary. Don't think about the, the odds of you becoming the chosen one because of this, this idol you're bowing down to being so infinitesimally small that it'll never happen. Don't think about these things, just blindly do it. Just go through life half awake. Jesus has come through Paul to say, wake up, let your heart fully feel. Let it fully fear, let it fully hope, let it fully long. Because when you do, you will be disappointed by all these things, thank God, and you will see me, the one who is standing before you, who has emptied himself to make you his own, to say, you don't have to sacrifice at the foot of any altar anymore. You just come and have life in me. Come and fight for your hearts. Come and fight for each other's hearts in this community. Come and fight for the hearts of the men and women who are out there who do not know this Jesus, but who are dying to know him. And it says that these people responded in the ways that people will respond today, the ways that we will respond. Some will mock. This is, this is idiocy. This is too good to be true. This is a fairy tale. Grow up. Some will say, you know what? I need to think about it some more. And if you're one of those people, that's wonderful. But do not be tricked into believing that that is a place you can stay. There are two places to stay, either in Christ or apart from Christ. And so if you are somebody who needs to hear more like some of these people, then go hear more and make that your first priority. And we would love to be a part of that process for you. And then it says, some will accept it and find life. And so now we get to uh, come to the communion table. We get to practice this uh, sacrament, this tangible, physical experience of a spiritual reality. The night that Jesus was betrayed, it says that he, he called his disciples to himself. They were celebrating the Passover feast, and he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is actually my body that is broken for you. My body is about to be broken for you so that you can feed on me and have life. So eat this in remembrance of me. And then it says, after the meal, he took the, the cup and he poured out wine and said, hey, this is actually the blood of a new covenant. This is my blood that's now going to be poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins and a new relationship with God. You are no longer drinking the cup of God's wrath. You are drinking the cup of the wedding feast, a foretaste of what's coming for everyone who is in Christ, which is life in him and with him for all time. And he says, I want you to celebrate this feast until the day I return, because you need it. You need to be strengthened by these tangible elements to remind you, you who are so frail, that I am keeping my promises, that I am returning. And when I return, I will take you to myself to have life in me forever. And so the way we do that here is we come up to these kneelers, come whenever you're ready. You can put out your hands like this when you're ready to receive the elements and we'll serve them to you. We, we do have gluten-free bread and so you can let us know if you need that. Um, but this table is for everyone. This table is for everyone who knows that they are a sinner who has tried to find life everywhere apart from God and they desperately need a savior and that that savior is Jesus. 
And if that's you and you're discovering this for the first time today, then come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And if, if you're like me and that's you discovering this for the millionth time, then come and taste and see that he is good and, and ask this Jesus to open your eyes to where you're trying to find life apart from him and to bring healing and transformation and to continue his good, long, slow work that he does in us. Father, thank you for, for this truth. Thank you for you and what you've done, Jesus, for us. Thank you that we do not have to fear condemnation, that we don't have to, Lord, that we, do, we don't have to uh, give ourselves to things that are dead and lifeless anymore that we can give ourselves to you as you have given yourself to us fully and completely forever. So Lord, as we, as we come to the table, uh, would you be so kind as to be found and felt to be who you are, uh, the beautiful God who is full of mercy and grace and love for us. In Jesus' name.